Hello, it's Mike Richards here from the Treasury Recruitment Company. I hope you're enjoying the Treasury Career Corner. If you are, great news. Perhaps you give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you consume your podcast content. This means that even more Treasury professionals can benefit from finding out or by finding out about how Treasurers have achieved their career goals. The link to rate our show will list at the bottom of our show notes. And please remember as well, the show itself is as much about you as it is about us. If there are specific questions you want us to ask or there's feedback you want to give, please drop me an email. My direct email is mike at treasuryrecruitment.com, inventably enough. But anyway, that's enough from me. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to this week's Treasury Career Corner podcast, where I interview treasury professionals about their treasury careers. Each week, I talk to treasurers about how they built their careers, where they are now, and where they see both themselves and the treasury profession going to next. This week's show, I'm delighted we're joined by a good friend of mine, Paul Harrison, the Head of Treasury Advisory at Grant Thornton. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Now, to give people who don't know, uh, Grant Thornton, uh, founded in Chicago back in 1924. He'll explain a bit more, but they're one of the, for those, again, some of the listeners that might not know, Grant Thornton, one of the world's leading independent audit, tax, advisory accounting firms, if you like. Grant Thornton, massive, 42,000 people across 120 countries, revenues 1.7 billion, so pretty good. Um, I'm, I'm surprised to let Paul in the door, you never, you never know. <laughs> I'm allowed to say that, it's all right, we're good mates. Paul, rather than, as I say, sometimes I give a big description, but why don't you describe your background? I mean, take us back and how you got your first start in maybe finance and then came into treasury. Okay, well, I, although I'm a Brit, and you can probably hear that from my accent, I actually spent some time living in Australia. So I moved over to Australia in 1985 with my mother. I did my degree over there in business and economics, and I actually moved back over here at the beginning of '93 to do, of all things, and, and you knowing me quite well, this may even raise your eyebrows, uh, to do a, a probably a PhD in economics. For those that know me, it's about as far as you can imagine it's almost like saying I was going to be a rocket scientist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the academic year in Australia runs concurrently with the, with the calendar year. And so I came over here in, in sort of January 93 and had, you know, six or eight months to kill before I would have started the, the masters that would have led to the PhD. I got myself a job. My, my father lived in the, in, in the Midlands and I got myself a job with a small bank up in Birmingham, which uh, was subsequently subsumed into HSC and, and eventually HSBC after after my time. And I was there for four years. Um, I went in as a graduate trainee and within literally six months was, was inserted pretty well on my own into what was somewhat euphemistically described as treasury. And that led to me selling commercial paper to the brokers in London, managing syndicated and bilateral facilities. And, and then following that, a treasury manager came in, a guy called Andrew Vaughan, who's now been been at uh, Bass for many, many years. And eventually there was three of us. I left that in 1997 and I moved down to London where I've been ever since. And I joined, and this shows you how long ago this was, I joined Grand Metropolitan, mm -hmm. which was one of the two legacy firms that only a few months later formed Diageo along with Guinness. A drinks company. What a surprise. A company. <laughs> well, you're going to find that I've done most of the vices, actually, um, <laughs> in a minute. <laughs> but, but yes, Kel Surprise. I, I did that for, for a, a year and a half. And actually, 
was able to leave as part of the, the uh, I, I was given a free option. I was very, very lucky. I was told, I, I said to them, I wanted to do an MBA. Um, I was working for a couple of guys who'd both done an MBA at about my age. And they said, well, just go and see if you can get in. They were probably skeptical whether I could actually, frankly, and, and rightly so. However, I did get in. I went to City and did an MBA in finance. I then joined Deloitte's and for a very short period of time was, I think what I can confidently say was possibly the world's worst treasury consultant ever uh, for a variety of reasons. Let's, let's just say my mind wasn't completely on the job. And I uh, moved straight from there to rail track four weeks before the Hatfield crash. So that was exciting times. I then moved after a year from there when rail track was being wound up to British American tobacco. So there's the second vice. From there, unfortunately, I was then made redundant. So you can, you can see my, my career is somewhat in this sort of four-year period, three-year period, albeit with an MBA in the middle, is somewhat concertinaed. So I've had a year here, a year there, a year the other place and so forth. I did a contract role, and then at that point, my career changed somewhat. In two, early 2004, I was very fortunate to be recruited by PwC. Now, the good news with that was I was recruited by PwC, great name, great training, and all the rest of it. The bad news was, and perhaps we can return to this, I had to take somewhat of a step back in terms of seniority and, crucially, money in order to do that. But I was at PwC for three and a half years, and in that time, I built up a small team that was doing treasury advisory, primarily into transactions, both pre and post deal. So you've done some corporate treasury roles, and then you made the move into consulting. Now, a lot of people say, you know, we discussed this when you you very kindly came on our panel recently Mm. to create a corner live, and there were a couple of other guys who had had exposure to and consulting and you know, some of the audience listening will go, oh, consulting, you know, uh, you know, that's a bit of sales in there. There's mm. all these different things, yeah. whereas they prefer working for one corporate yeah. and improving it and stuff like that. Why did you make a move? I mean, they, as you say, they approach you, but then, or how did it come about and why well, did how, you actually how it, okay. how it came about was, you know, there were, there were various options and PwC was one of them. Um, I'd actually, when I joined Deloitte, I was also offered a job by PwC several years before as well. So I re- reconnected with the people that offered me a job then who I, you know, knocked back. So it was a bit cheeky really doing that anyway, one might say. And they interviewed me. They were looking anyway. And they took me on. But, but to answer your question more broadly, why consulting? It did interest me. It had always interested me, you know, and, and for the reasons that a lot of people give, which is that you get a very wide exposure to a lot of things both in from a technical perspective and from an organizational perspective and actually from a geographical perspective as well i mean i i've worked in a great many countries i've done work in most western european countries i've been to portugal on business i'm afraid and or possibly luxembourg i'm not sure i would know but all of the scandies all of the dutch countries spain italy greece turkey i've also worked in japan india Canada, various parts of the US. And so it gives, it gives you that exposure to a lot of other stuff in a whole ri- a range of areas. Now, I, I get the argument with being in one place. One, one of the things with being in one place is that you get to specialize sometimes. You also get to see something through a number of cycles, whether that's just time passing or, or whatever. The disadvantage is, of course, you, you can get stuck in a rut. That rarely happens with consulting. 
And with that, with that role of consulting, you say, you know, there's all those different varieties, but how do you balance that, you know, with your, your life really, you know, because you're, you're having to travel. How do you manage that? Because a lot of people, again, particularly actually, I don't know why, you know, it seems within Europe, maybe it's the manageable travel and things like that. But some of the guys I talked to in the US, and let's give an example, there was a, a chap I was talking to a couple of years ago working for actually one of the larger consultancy companies, which you mentioned. But we, we were joking at one stage, I saw him at a conference and I said, surely you could just turn over your card and actually just write, because he was telling me about some of the companies he'd worked for and it, it seemed he had never been in the office, you know, and it was, you know, he was 80% travel and he had a wife and kids and eventually he had to leave. He loved, enjoyed the variety of the role, but how did he balance that and how did he balance that personal wise and stuff like that? I, I think one of the ways you try to balance is it is, is by getting more senior. Right. <laughs> so if I'm, if I'm completely honest with you, quite a lot of the, 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 the excess travel that people do, particularly this side of the pond, I think is done at the more junior level. I mean, a lot of the time, the travel itself is overnight. So by the nature of a lot of the work I do, I'm going to Milan or Madrid or Stockholm or something like that for two days and one night or perhaps three days and one and two nights that would have been clever wouldn't it yeah. but but clearly yeah travel can be an issue and and travel is an issue for a lot of people and they'll, they'll you know and then quite honestly even if you are traveling business class and or staying in reasonably nice hotels you know the the glamour as epitomized by sort of 1960s movies sort of pan am and all the rest of it does pull quite quickly but against that you are also getting to see some different parts of the world and, and some different organizations and people if you want to work in an, a particular office the whole time, you can still sometimes do that with consulting, but it depends on what consulting you're going to do. So a lot of the deal-based stuff can often be in-house because there's a lot of analysis and a lot of work that you're going to do there. It, it really does depend. And you said that you built a practice there and was that forced upon you? You know, build a practice and everything well, else? Were you it thinking? sort of was. I mean, I, I, to, to be clear, that was that, the, the, the time we're talking about was 12 or 13 years ago. So I was much yeah. more junior in that sense. So I, I had a small team of people that largely did work for me. The person that oversaw the whole practice then was a guy called David Stebbings, who a lot of people listening will know, and perhaps mm. even David's listening. So David had worked very hard to build that practice up, in particular working in the transaction area, which he subsequently then moved on to larger corporates, I think, uh, around the time I left DWC in 2007. You build up a, a business. In that case, the, the clients were typically internal. The clients were typically the partners, um, the transaction partners at PwC. But, but while I was at PwC then, towards the end of that time, I, I, I came across an organization who were on the other side of a very large transaction called PMC. Hmm. And I joined them in 2007, was there for 11 years, actually, until early last year. And PMC was, and indeed I believe still is, uh, focused on treasury advisory, both hedging and consulting into the private equity market. So my role there was on the, what we called the operational treasury side. So that meant working with typically private equity sponsors and their portfolio companies to either establish a treasury function from scratch, particularly in a carve-out situation, or to use rather consulting language, make it fit for purpose in a leveraged environment. So that leveraged environment, what, what that's really focusing on then is, is making sure that the organization's short-term cash flow forecasting works well, 
that it can manage its FX and its exposure to that because the organization is typically less resilient, fix up any holes in the banking that may arise from a transaction. And then finally, I think just making sure that the organization can manage a new debt facility. So I did that for about 11 years. In the last few years, I was looking after a quarter of the business, really, which is the operational treasury side for Europe. And and that went quite well. I, I built that up um, quite substantially. Prior to that, I'd worked with and for a guy called Michael Haken, who had done that role previously and who retired a couple of years ago and very much was a mentor for me then. Yeah. But then I joined Grant Thornton last year. But before you moved to Grant Thornton, let's look at the transition PwC to PMC. Mm. Just changing a couple of letters. Yes, yeah, quite. But PwC, global accounting firm, business yeah. walking through the door, you know, as a result, a lot of the time of maybe an audit or a review or anything else, the business just sort of is brought up to your door and not a hundred percent, but you know, stuff like that. And then you've joined in some ways, not a startup, but a more established company, but at the end of the day, not a PwC global mega major. How, you know, how did that change your role? And what was that like actually, you know, having to fight for business as it were? Changed the role substantially. I mean, there, there were a number of reasons for moving. One was that with joining PMC, I was going to be specializing in treasury consulting and in particular area that I now knew quite well. Whereas at PwC, certainly then, I can't speak for now or indeed the, the time, the intervening period, they, they were very much moving towards a model whereby you became much more of a general finance consultant which frankly, I didn't want to do. That wasn't, it wasn't where I said, I know what I know. It was more, it, it wasn't what I wanted to do. So to pick up on your point about the business and, and making sure that you, you get the right amount of business in, that was actually quite pleasing as well because at PMC, you were encouraged to, uh, over time, to begin to build your own relationships with private equity sponsors and with CFOs. If I think of my client base today, my client base is, is pretty well exclusively, there are some group treasurers, but it's pretty well exclusively a CFO or other senior but general finance person, depending on the organization, and or the investment director to a portfolio partner at a private equity sponsor. I now have some relationships at those organizations that date back 10, 12, 14 years. And that, that's very interesting and very exciting. And I think what it does also bring up, and, and I think this topic came up in the, the meeting, the, the presentation, the panel presentation we all attended a few days ago. Well, one of the other concerns that people often have with consulting, in, in addition to potentially having to travel and a dis- somewhat disconcerting nature of change is, is this idea of selling. So when I was having a, a quick beverage afterwards with several people, hmm. more than one of them came up and said, well, how do you manage the selling? What, 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 you know, it, it's the selling that I would hate. And I think there's somewhat of a misnomer there you know, because the, 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 the concept of selling in that context implies that you're getting on the phone and, and you're almost sort of in, inviting people to, to purchase um, double glazing from you or those, those family portraits and so forth, some photograph portraits. When, when in actual fact, it's not really like that. It's primarily about relationships. So it's about putting together a compelling offering to people. So knowing what you're talking about, having the resources, having some credibility there, and then building up a relationship with somebody over time, whereby you are you obviously then build a track record, but you clearly are understanding what they are looking for. That's quite different from selling lollipops. 
And that was one of the things. So just for, again, anyone who's listening, so Paul very kindly stepped in and was a guest. We ran the tr- first ever Treasury Career Corner Live event here in London. We got three treasurers. I got Greg Coza from Vanquist Bank. I got Connor Marr from RBS. And Paul very kindly joined us from Grant Thornton. And what happened was I interviewed the three the three guys that all have been on the podcast, or Paul was about to do his today. And we talked about their careers. We talked about exactly as I said at the start of the show, how they got to where they are. And we got into various issues. And this was one of the things about consulting. And that's why, you know, it was an education event. So it wasn't just a, you know, very technical event and things. We got a lot of treasury analysts, treasury managers, treasury dealers in the audience to sort of coach them. And exactly as Paul says, that was to sort of dispel some of the myths because sometimes those guys, you know, were going, oh, I don't want to be a sales guy. Exactly as you say. Yeah. Well, it's not. It's actually, you know, professional services. You know, it's, yeah. it's actually, you know, we can deliver change or help you with that as well. And I think it worked rather well. Don't you? I mean, I, I, I do. I do. I mean, it, it's 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 always difficult to evaluate from from that side of the the the, the uh, podium, of course. But yeah. but yes, I, I I felt it it went well, and yeah, we had an interesting range of questions both during the the main part of the event and following it, and it was interesting to hear some people's perspectives on that that side. It was also interesting to hear that you know there were some people who again were thinking. Why would I do this and why wouldn't I in, in a way that clearly, you know, I had quite a few years before and then to hear what their perspectives were and, and what their decision making criteria are. Just going back on a point you made there, Paul, you, you talked there about you, you develop these relationships with CFOs, with sponsors. Yeah. One thing I think is perhaps to, to maybe, maybe highlight on this because a lot of the time, a lot of the listeners to this show will be treasury professionals, and rightly so. Yes. But it's it's a similar thing that I face that, you know, for instance, I'm in the process of uh, a lot of my treasurers say, oh, have you got any more treasury roles? I'd like a big treasurer role, please, da-da-da. And I said, well, the problem is I have these amazing relationships with you treasury guys. And this is what the podcast's about. That's fantastic. Mm. But a treasurer doesn't necessarily always recruit their replacement. I need to have some really great relationships. So any CFOs listening, please call me. (laughs) But, you know, joking aside, we're actually putting together, in fact, I'm doing this with case studies for, you know, a CFO's guide to recruiting your next treasurer. And that's not, you know, and trying to give some advice about what they might think about how to create a job description, what the treasury market is like and all that advice. Now, when you talk there, you talk about having relationships with CFOs and with sponsors. That's not at the cost of relationship with the treasurers, is it? It's more they're part of the transaction deal and you'll then help a treasurer split to one side of it? Or how would you describe those relationships well, you perhaps have with those guys? Well, really, I mean, there's, there's several strands there. So yeah. I have a close relationship with a number of treasurers, but they operate on what, what we call a panel basis with, with and for me. So I have a relationship with about 10 senior interim panel freelance treasurers who sometimes dip in and do some permanent work for a few years. But they, in the case of a couple of them, they've worked with and for me for almost 10 years. So I have a relationship with a number of them anyway. With others, with the treasury market, where you are talking to group treasurers, one of the issues for them will be, well, why would I use a consultant when my CFO is going to say, can't you do it? And so their response to that will be, well, either we will use a consultant where we just don't have the bandwidth 
to, to get something done. Or alternatively, where we need some particular advice in a particular area. I mean, the most obvious one there is uh, treasury system selection. But there are others, and, and certainly most organizations get the concept of doing a request for proposal, but don't always necessarily, uh, are not particularly au fait with, with actually putting one together. But the other reason why my relationship is quite often with the, with the CFO or the private equity sponsor is because apart from the fact that they're often the person making the decision, with a lot of the organizations I deal with, whilst they have a requirement for treasury services, whether those are banking, cash management, FX, et cetera, they don't necessarily have the requirement for a treasury function. And particularly in a private equity environment, once the business is bought and settled down, a lot of its financing and hedging requirements are sort of set for the next two, three, four years. And so a lot of the incremental work that they will keep a, uh, should we say, a fully qualified and experienced treasurer, uh, keep, keep he or she happy, doesn't necessarily exist. So quite often, my market then is not, not just in competition with, because it's not usually, it's more that my, my actual, the requirer of the services I'm going to provide is that CFO. As you described, you were working PMC with all these different groups, and yeah. you thought, I don't know, let's go to Grant Thornton, yeah. establish a new yeah. treasury consulting practice, or you know, how did that come about? And uh, you, you're back into it. Well, yeah, I've kind of moved. I've moved to, as you say, a, a much larger firm. So, so Grant Thornton, uh, Grant Thornton itself is not going to pretend that it's of the same size and scale as PwC and the other big four, but it's also not a million miles away. You know, I mean, in in the UK, Grant Thornton and BDO are about the same size. I think BDO is now just slightly bigger again because they've made a an acquisition of a smaller firm. But you know, we're both sort of level pegging at number five, and typically just under half the size of the the smallest of the big four here in the UK, which I believe at the moment overall is, is KPMG. We offer a whole range of services, as you, you articulate. I'm not going to go through all that again. I had formed a relationship with Grant Thornton over several years where I firstly knew several people. It's a, it's a small world who had moved there and were and are there as partners. And I went to them and said, look, guys, you know, you don't have a treasury advisory practice at all, or at least it's not as far as I can see from your website. How about we at PMC help you with that? That went well. We did a couple of pieces of work that they'd referred, and they started to talk to me. We started to have a discussion about would I contemplate moving to Grand Thornton? Now, that was a process that took quite a while. I had some equity at uh, PMC, and I had some longstanding relationships and loyalty there, but decided to leave towards the end of 2017, left in March last year, and joined Grand Thornton after a short break in May. I think what's more important with Grand Thornton is that their offering to me was very open-ended, very entrepreneurial, and giving me an awful lot of autonomy to get on with it and just, just do it. So my brief was, is what you might call a, a greenfield site job. So they said, you know, we're going to support you in whatever that means, where we'll refer clients, we'll provide you with marketing backup, we'll provide you with junior staff as and when required, et cetera, et cetera. And we'll also just give you some time to get on with it. And that's what they are doing. And it's, yeah. it's been great. It's a lovely organization, lovely people, lovely culture. By and large, it's an organization that's going places. And I think it has, it has a strong and growing brand, which uh, resonates with... I can speak from personal experience with a lot of my now and future clients. What do you enjoy most about 
not treasury, but treasury consulting. Why has this kept you, you know, why has this gripped you? Why has it kept your interest? Well, it sounds quite sad, but the, the, one of the reasons why I quite like, because it is, is client-led, you actually do get quite a lot of satisfaction out of doing a good job and having the client happy. Now, that, that can sound a bit fluffy, and I do acknowledge that, but, but when you do a good job and you, you know that you've delivered something well, that can be very satisfying. You know, we're not going to quite say when you've helped somebody because that makes it sound particularly altruistic and because clearly we own, earn a fee and that makes that work well. Hmm. But, but it, it, yeah, I, think, I think part of the, the joy of consulting can be assisting a client to work through a problem or a challenge that they have. And I get an awful lot out of that, frankly. Okay, flip side. I remember this ever since the lovely Chris Hill, now I think he's CEO actually over at Hargreaves Lansdowne, and I, I actually placed him originally as the treasurer, came out of Arthur Anderson, placed him as the treasurer of GE Insurance. Yep. Later became Gemworth and things. And, but when I did, I, I sort of had, I remember having vividly first ever real insight into consulting. I said, you know, only similar to you, he told me about some of the things he really enjoyed about it at the time. So what do you hate about it? What do you he said? Ah, right. The glass room. I said, right, okay. He said, yeah. So you're the consultant. You've delivered this piece of work, and then in the sort of the world, they make they make you then stand outside this room, and you walk through these glass doors, and they get together all the treasury team, and they all toast some, you know, get some champagne. They all toast it. Oh, haven't we done a great thing? This is a great recommendation. And you look through the door. Number one, you don't get any of the champagne. You said, well, yes, all right, I can live with that. I can go buy my own stuff. But you've then helped them, and they round in the middle, they this cake, this cake that you've create, helped them create. And it's a, an amazing cake of, you know, this treasury wonderfulness. And you think, oh, my God, this is great. And they go, do you know what? That's fab, but no one's making us do that. And they then either throw the cake in the bin, say, no, you're right, thanks, actually. You know, we've done our consulting, but we don't need it. Or they take one of the slices of the cake and they put the other two up on the, either up on the shelf and say, we'll do those later or chuck them in the bin. Or... There's another cake at the other end. I said, actually, we we don't like that cake. We're not bothered with that one. That's a bit too expensive, that cake. We go for the cheaper ones down here. And all of these were describing the the frustrations he, he sort of felt or could see that could come out of delivering a piece of work. And then people have said before, you know, with our business, it'd be great business if only you didn't have to deal with the clients. Well, the clients are a lifeblood and everything else. And that joking, joking all, all aside... At the end of the day, you know, how do you deal with that? Or have you had experience of that yourself? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, mean I, I don't use a cake analogy. Sometimes the analogy can be more that you, you, make, you make the meal, um, although it's still food, isn't it? You don't get to eat it and, and, yeah. and, and, and everything else. My difficulty is not so much that. My difficulty is that sometimes, take a step back, some, sometimes you'll have a meeting for a couple of hours with a client and at minute 90, you're still not at the point where you really fully understand what you think the problem is, let alone what the solution is. And you're thinking, oh my goodness. And, and occasionally you don't ever get it. And, and so they'll criticize you and so on and so forth. But you usually do, and that can be very satisfying. Where it isn't satisfying and where, where it can be is, is sometimes when, for whatever reason, this doesn't happen often, the client will sort of accuse you of bad faith. It's, it's as though either A, you deliberately didn't do a good job, and that rarely happens, 
Uh, or alternatively, sometimes I'll even have this idea that you, if they'd only paid a little bit more, you would have got out this special silver bullet that you had in your pocket that you were holding back on until they pay that bit more to you. And none of those are the case. By and large, you want to help somebody solve their problem, earn a fee, and move on to the next piece of work. The, the comment about the cake and the client and that, you know, this job would be great without clients is true. And clearly, the flip side of helping people is that you've got to help them. And sometimes people, should we say, will play the client prerogative rather more than they should do. That's human nature, but doesn't yeah. make it any better. We talked before the show that Paul's actually building up the team and we're giving, you know, helping there and various other bits. But your ethos around recruitment, you've obviously grown up with it. You, we talked actually when we did the panel the other day about qualifications and some of the versus experience and what some of the different people on the panel you know, valued. But when you're in recruitment mode, as it were, obviously, as we say, we're on the Treasury Recruitment Company. This is us hosting the podcast, as it said. What's your ethos around recruitment? What do you look for with people? Firstly, remembering that I'm not looking to, in almost all situations, I'm not looking to recruit at a graduate trainee level, really. Mm. So I, I'm usually looking for somebody who's got probably a few years of experience and, and actually I'm typically in my, my situation looking for someone with somewhat of either the background or the would like to have background that I have had. In other words, I'd rather have somebody who has some treasury experience who's considering consulting rather than someone who's just a consultant because as long as you can iron out some of the, the rough edges that, that inevitably come from only working in a corporate whilst retaining the deep skills that you'll get, that to me is a, is a better combination. In terms of qualifications, I'm, I mean, I'm talking as someone who's got a, a degree an MBA and I'm a, I was an MCT by examination. I clearly don't discount education, but I'm also interested in, in the, the individual and just, in, and it's a very intangible thing and that sort of spark, that sort of potential, the aptitude, the attitude rather than just quals. I've had a number of situations over the years where, you know, I've been desperate to see a particular individual on the basis of their CV. And then when you see them, you're not quite sure how they managed to find their way into the office uh, for a variety of reasons. And similarly, I've had several CVs pushed towards me by including your good self, where you've largely seen them on the basis of cajoling by Michael. And I've been really glad that I have. <laughs> I, um, I wonder so, where that was going then. I was yeah, like, no, no, well, that's, that bit's going to have to be edited out. <laughs> <laughs> So no, no, but but I'm not sure it should be edited out actually, Mike, because it's true. You know, it's 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 great to have that spark, and that that's what I'm looking for. It's 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 an aptitude, and certainly a guy. Um, we both know who I'm talking about, who's a French, who you introduced me to a few years ago, had that spark, and certainly more than delivered on that that potential. As we wrap up today's show, and you very kindly, if people want to connect with Paul, you can get his LinkedIn link for his profile in our show notes. So we'll put that in there. And he said that you're happy to connect with people if it's Absolutely. obviously relevant and everything else. But Paul, we, we asked this at the panel the other day, and I'll ask you today to perhaps on your own terms, describe for the guys, if they, they come along and they say, right, I've looked at Paul's background. Actually, that seems quite interesting. I'd like a background like that. That that sounds a sort of the sort of role or the sort of career that I would like to replicate and things like that. Now, looking back across it, you've done a variety of things, but 
what would you what advice would you give to those guys and say right this is what you you perhaps need to do or need to think about I think I think the the, the the word of advice, which always makes you sound like you're just sort of the grandfather with a mm-hmm. pack of Werther's sweets or something like that. These yeah, days. we're not far off it. So. Well, no, no, quite, unfortunately, yes. <laughs> I, th- I think the thing I, I would, would say to people is, 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 firstly, your career inevitably is not going to go in a, in a diagonal. Things are going to go better than they should at times, and they're going to go less well than they should at times. So I said, I've absolutely been made redundant once, and I was pretty well made redundant another time when there was at Deloitte, you know, but that was where I was particularly useless then, as I say. What I would say, though, is when, not if, when you have a career should we say challenge, try to think about it positively and recognize that it's quite possible that this challenge is going is to work out in, in a good way. And also to recognize that sometimes you need to perhaps go backwards to go forwards. When I left BAT and then there was a short gap and then I moved to, to PwC, I took a, a cut in, in both pay, that was a substantial one, and seniority to move there. Once I was at PwC, I went through an incredibly uncomfortable period where my report writing had to be shredded and started again, and my understanding of a whole range of different areas and things were were challenged and and refocused. What I came out of with all of that, though, was I was a much better and more competent person. One of my favorite gags about myself is that I'm better now, or rather not as good now, as I thought I was 20 years ago. Now, it's largely a reflection of what I thought I was 20 years ago, which was, there was a bit of a, should we say, an ability to self-awareness gap. But, you know, you get better, but sometimes you get better by having some of those challenges. Go back sometimes to go forward. Great advice. Yeah, there you go. We try and finish maybe on a catchphrase sometimes. Go back to go <laughs> forward. That's it. One step, two steps back. And all maybe that. one step forward. I like it. That's no, good. Paul, delight as always to talk to you. You'll see guys on the show notes connect with Paul via his LinkedIn profile. It just leaves me to say, Paul, thank you for a great show. Really enjoyable to talk thank to you. you and look forward to the future. Pleasure. Thank you. Talk to you Very soon, guys. Nice.